Just a heads up that in this podcast, you'll hear young people talking about what it was like for them when their mental health wasn't at its best. If you or someone you know needs support, visit headspace.org.au, where there are heaps of different ways to connect with someone who can listen, answer your questions and help. Plus, there's a big list of other services you could try, like Lifeline or Kids Helpline, in our show notes. I was in high school and just had a massive outburst at school one day, like completely out of character, just went off my nut in the classroom, like just wasn't taking anyone's shit that day. And the school were just like, nah, like you need to go get support, you need to go see someone. And for the first probably four sessions I remember just sitting on the couch looking at this social worker, she's asking me questions and I'm just sitting there internally going, I don't want to be here. I don't want to talk to you. The more you sit there in silence and they're asking you questions, it started to tick over and I was like, oh, maybe this chick knows what she's talking about. Like, you know, maybe I'll answer one question. Ooh, awkward. But I want to know what happens next. Because what does getting help for your mental health look like? And while the end stop might be professional help, what happens along the way with friends, family, teachers, or just someone else that feels, well, right? Hey, it's Penny Terry here, and we've had bits and pieces of this already throughout this podcast series, but in this episode of Get Psyched, we're really going to look at how the process of getting help happens. And it's not always that smooth, as Liz started to explain at the beginning of the episode. Speaking of which, why don't we just turn that story back up? They're asking you questions, started to tick over, and I was like, oh, maybe this chick knows what she's talking about. Like, you know, maybe I'll answer one question, and then you start to answer something, and then it kind of just got on a roll from there. Um, yeah, so all throughout high school, all throughout college, um, yeah, seek support through the school system, um, which was great, but also a bit inconvenient. They were there like two, three days a week. So it's for a whole school, you know, you might get a session here and then they're like, okay, we'll try and get you in in like two or three weeks and then pushes out to six weeks and, you know, like talking to someone once every six or seven weeks, you feel like you need more time when you're in there. So you start having a conversation and then gets cut off and then you just feel like you're not being listened to. So it's a bit of a win some, you lose some. Now, Liz talks here about something that is a thing, how the process of getting support isn't always smooth and not just because of the person who wants the help, but because of the systems around it. And while we're not going to sort that out in this podcast, a little further through, we will talk about the way that Headspace works and how they have some things that you can do if you find that you are waiting. But look, let's skip back a little to find out what else happened before Liz walked into that room. Like, I had a lot of people telling me, like, you know, if you're this upset, you need to go and do something about it. But that fear of not being able to be fixed was just so overwhelming. And there was a lot of conversation that went with that about, oh, if you go and get help, like, they'll put you on medication. And being on medication was something that I never, ever wanted. Like, it was just like a massive fear of, like, having to be reliant on something that, um, 
I didn't believe to be natural. And I, but so many people were telling me like, no, you need to go and get help. You need to do this. And I think the more that people tried to push me, the more I wanted to prove them wrong that I could do it without it. And the more I just dug myself a hole, like if I just copped it on the chin to start with, like it probably would have been so much easier to deal with, but it ended up being this big issue because I just wanted to prove people wrong because I was scared. Um, how do you feel about it now, that that worry that you had about medication? Yeah, like I've been on medication now for probably four or five years and like I've been on and off it. Um, you know, like I definitely see the difference, um, but, you know, I'm still at a point where it's not the only resource that I'm using. Like I think I had a bit of a thought at the start that if I was on medication, it was like, take this home, sort yourself out. Whereas, you know, there's different steps to it, like making sure that you still see your clinician, still talk to other people. Um, yeah, I think I just had this thought in my head that if I got put on medication, like that was it, this is your solution, take this home, deal with it. Um, but the fact that it's just like one piece in the puzzle, like makes me feel better about the whole situation. Um, and that that's not ruling my life. There's so many things that you can be doing, um, yeah, to help. So I guess that's the reminder that there's nothing instant about this stuff. There may not be a quick fix. It's ongoing, which could also seem a bit overwhelming. But I also remember how Caroline, one of the clinicians who we've met on this podcast, how she said last episode that learning to manage your mental health when you're young is up there with the most useful life experience you can get. Now, there are plenty of different motivators that could lead you to professional help. This is the version that worked for Shana. I think I was aware of it for a long time. Um, Like, I wanted to do more in school and I want to go to uni and be a photographer. So I kind of thought, you know, with that thought process that, I'm going to need the help and support to get there and so I would have to talk with my parents first and then go see a doctor and stuff and because I struggled actually talking about it with my family, I would write them a letter instead of, and that way I can get it out without pressuring myself to talk about it. How did that work and how did your family receive it? It went really well. I still use it now if I struggle to talk about things in person with them and they really understand that and I think it's a good way if there's just like one thing in particular that you can't get out but you really want them to know about, it's a really good way to communicate that to them. What do you remember about that first time that you went in to get help and I guess how did it happen? How did you get there? Yeah, um, just talk to my doctor first. I wanted wasn't sure whether, because at that time I was doing homeschooling, I wasn't sure where to go or what was right or if I needed, like, I don't know, medication or something like that. And, yeah, he, you know, because I was so young, he suggested Headspace. And when I went in there, it was it's a very friendly community and stuff, so I felt really comfortable there. And when I... Went into the room, my mum came in with me and I just looked at her and I was like, can you please go out? And I think she was kind of offended but 
I made her go out and it was kind of awkward. I kind of felt really self-conscious and, yeah, kind of didn't know where to start. I didn't know what to talk about. I had no plan of what to talk about or anything, but they had the question set up and everything, which helped, but because it was the first session, I couldn't really go into great detail. I was too nervous to talk, so I'd just give short answers and wouldn't go into great detail. And just on that word, detail, I mean, there's something about hearing these stories that I haven't heard before. It's like we either hear the really shiny version of getting professional help or the horror version. And I guess that's what I love about these stories is they're just so honest. And yeah, the first session might be awkward, might be great. There are no guarantees. Here's how it looked for Luke. The night before, I wrote everything that made me upset down on my phone. And then I walked in and I just, I was pretty much a mess as soon as I walked into Headspace. So I sat down, filled out some paperwork, and then I met someone called um, Jenny. She came out to the room that um, people sit down in and then brought me into a room and then she's like, so what brings you in? I said, oh, I've got a lot going on and I just handed her my phone. I didn't say anything. She just read through my phone um, and she just started at the top with the issues that I had and we addressed them one by one and had a chat and then she explained to me at the end of the session that um, this is what we're going to do and we can help you, you're not the only one and it it kind of made me feel relieved Um, but it definitely helped me as a person to start the journey of actually like fixing myself um, and going and getting to where I wanted to be. Ella, do you remember the first time you got support and how that worked when you were in there? The first time I got support, the day before, I'd had like one of the very few proper major, I'm not going to school. I didn't go and do anything tricky like try to pretend I was sick or anything. I just refused. I went, I hid under my little sister's bed because I'm like, oh, they won't look for me there. Of course they're going to find me. But in that state, I was like, they're not going to find me there. So the next day I was turned around and my mom's like, I'm taking you to Headspace. I'm like, yes, please. And I went in, we met someone, we went in, we had a talk. Then we spoke about, oh, well, we've got a little while before we have anyone who is able to do these bigger sort of more normal sessions, but we have this program coming up that's kind of new. We can get you in for that. So I was like, yeah, I'll take anything you've got. We've just heard four very different versions of getting professional help for your mental health. And again, perhaps we need to rewind for a moment and talk with a clinician about that bit that happens before young people walk in the door, because you might be in that bit right now. So let's get our final session for this podcast series with mental health clinician Caroline Thane. Look, I think young people naturally gravitate to other young people first. Um, And I think then I suppose their peer group can sometimes feel pressure to try and solve problems. 
Um, so, you know, it's not uncommon for us, as again, as clinicians, to be having conversations with young people about remembering you're a friend and not a therapist to your friends. And I guess if the conversations you're having with your friend are dominated by um, mental health or you're noticing that they're really changing things in their life because their mental health is um, unfortunately deteriorating, then it's definitely important to call in support. I'd imagine those conversations can be tricky when you start to suggest that somebody might need some extra help. What are some tips on how to have those conversations? Um, I think it's important to talk about I suppose doing it from a stance of being kind and caring and really worrying about your friend rather than it being a directive. It's about saying, I'm so worried about you. Um, And that can sound and be received a little bit more easily rather than you need to go and do that. You know, I guess we've talked about that before around thinking about the statements you use, being not sort of blamey in your language. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's that's open to a lot of young people, especially in the school setting, you know, using your wellbeing teams in your school to seek support if you feel like you can't have that conversation with your friend. I think that can be done in, in a really safe way where you can get um, some guidance and support by professionals to help you have that conversation with your friend. Well, just on that, what are the options for the friend, for the carers, for the parents? Yeah to try and help them in those conversations if they find they are getting nowhere with, uh, you know, the person that they're worried about? Look, people can, you know, ring places like Headspace and actually ask for support in those conversations. So it's quite common for Headspace centres to have as you say, um, adults and friends ring and say, look, I'm really worried about this person. They won't come in. They don't see that they have a problem, but what should we do? We might never see that young person, but we are able to help in the background, I suppose, in that what we call that consultation role. How big of a deal is it for a young person to walk in to see any sort of mental health clinician that first time? Oh, it, I guess it varies from person to person. Some people feel super comfortable. They are really familiar with Headspace and um, know that it's a place that young people come and feel really comfortable from the get-go. For a lot of people, though, um, it's really it's scary because you know that you're going to be asked questions about your mental health. It means you have to be a little bit vulnerable. It might mean that you have to sit in some uncomfortable feelings as you're talking. Um, and I always talk to young people when they first walk in the door about how awesome it is that they were actually able to walk in and talk to them about how it's really normal to feel uncomfortable here and um, is there anything else we can do to sort of help. And and for a lot of young people, um, they do get used to it and then they keep coming most of the time, which is nice until they achieve their goals. So yeah. Is it also about worrying that someone might see them walk in there or who's going to be in the waiting room? Who works there? What if there's someone I know? Um, And what can we do to kind of control those concerns? I think every Headspace Centre has this kind of quandary in that we want to be central so it's easy to find us and and walk in. But then, so we want to be accessible and open and people can know how to access us. But then it's tricky because then people, young people also talk to us about I don't want to be seen walking in necessarily. I don't want people to know that I'm seeing Headspace. So we, we try and, I suppose, juggle that, which, which can be definitely tricky. And I guess that's where eHeadspace and other online options come into the play. Absolutely. That's exactly what we say. So for a lot of young people that don't want to walk into the centre or it's easier to access things online, we definitely recommend eHeadspace. One more question, which is a bit tricky. 
I don't necessarily think this podcast is the place to talk about the system, but it's likely that people might experience a wait at some stage when they are trying to access help. What are some strategies that people can do in the, while the waiting's going on? And maybe this is some stuff that we've already talked about. Um, so the, the fancy label we use is demand management, <laughs> which is about, yeah, managing that need for service. And because our model is designed to be easily accessible so people can walk in and be seen really quickly. Um, and we have lots of other programs, I suppose. I'm talking about Headspace specifically where we will get young people to um, start to learn some, again, psychoeducation modules sort of straight away while they're waiting to see a therapist if that's what they need. I, I think the trouble we have is there's so much online, so it's really hard to navigate. So what I tend to tell young people to do and parents and carers is to look at Head to Health, which is an Australian government portal and you pop in there what your difficulties are and they actually navigate you to evidence-based platforms where you can actually access information. So sometimes a really good place to start is actually just um, upskilling in some in some sort of general psychoeducation. So, you know, basics around things like sleep, managing worry, um, physical health, physical exercise, diet, nutrition, those sorts of things can be a nice thing thing for you to do um, while you're waiting for a therapist if that's what you need. Now hang on, does that sound a bit similar to, well, this podcast? Yep. Look, I'll let you in on a secret. Part of the reason for creating this series is about giving you another way to get that psychoeducation so that you might find that you can manage your own mental health or be in a better position if you do get professional help. And the best bit? You can listen wherever you like, as many times as you like, and no one will have a clue. But if you're just after the quick recap version, let's call back clinician Mark Vandenenden. He's got five main points for us. So grab your mental note-taking pen. So if we are sleeping well, which generally means getting to bed before 10, if we are eating well, which means eating like our great-grandparents used to eat, you know, healthy, unprocessed, natural food. If we are exercising, the bodies are meant to be active. And I'm not saying, you know, smash it out of the gym. I'm saying, you know, walk a few hills, you know, take the dog for a walk, you know, um, do some gardening. If we are actively engaged in a social life in which we can be ourselves we have a sense of place and belonging and we can just let it all hang out and be a complete dag and not be judged for that that is incredibly beneficial for the mind and if we have the ability because generally speaking humans will we've got three times that we tend to dwell in you know the past which is usually related generally speaking to depression the future which again generally speaking is related to anxiety and the present moment the present moment is the only time we ever have and is the only time that we ever have any control over. So the ability to bring our mind back to the present moment. So these five, sleeping, eating well, exercising, socialising and being here now are going to remedy 80% of the problems that we experience. That sounds sort of achievable. I mean, that's one hand. You counted that on one hand. Mm, mm. But it must be hard work too. Again, you're changing habits. So we need a really strong um, 
sense of who we want to become and we need good reasons to want to create change because change is hard and branching out and extending into you know the, the new kind of person that you want to create as me it's going to be really uncomfortable so we need a good reason and you know what better reason than than you know this is me you know i'm i'm worth it you know this is i've got the rest of my life ahead of me i can do nothing and nothing will change or i can start to make small changes towards the person i want to be and you know we know that the brain is constantly able to change then how can i not succeed are you feeling pumped yeah okay so you may be you might not be and look there's time to sift through the many strategies that are within this podcast or click through on the links that you'll find in the show notes and i hope you get something out of something and if nothing else how's this tune Okay, but before we get to the end of this episode, I want to go back to the start, to the bit where Liz said she was scared about going on medication. Now, there'll be lots of people who would have thought this or said something similar. Clinician Danielle Jackson has lots of these conversations, and here's where she starts. With asthma, like people say, yeah, if you need a puffer, great, take your medication. Because sometimes when people are prescribed medication for their mental health, people are like, oh, you don't need, you don't need that, or should you really be on that? Would you say that to someone who's having an asthma attack? No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I often make that comparison with people. If they've had a chat with their doctor, they've started medication and they're feeling a bit uneasy about being on medication, um, yeah, exploring that a bit more and, and talking that through. And often looking at it like... Um, you know, if you're doing work on a building, it's like the medication's like the scaffolding around the building. So you might get a bit more out of your therapy while you're on your medication. And as you review it with your doctor and you're ready to take the medication away and go off the medication, you can sort of take your scaffolding down and you've been able to put the work in and, and things have improved. Because it's often a short-term intervention for young people medication. Yeah. Do you find that it's young people that have the judgments around taking medication or it's the other people within their lives or perhaps a bit of both? I think it might be a bit of both. Yeah, definitely. Like they'll be aware of the attitudes of people around them, but definitely um, plenty of young people I see would be a bit cautious about taking medication for their mental health. Definitely. How much of that I'm tough, I can get through this without it. I can, I can do it. Goes on. Yeah, you would definitely hear a lot of that, people pushing through a lot longer than if it was asthma or a broken leg. People might just feel like they have to keep pushing on without talking to a doctor about it. Liz brought up that if you've got a sore arm or you've got a a bad virus, you'll happily go to the doctor and you don't let it go generally for four months before you go and do something about it. What do we know about when is good to intervene and to do something about it? Yeah, early intervention is the best option, of course. And yeah, because the earlier you start working on it, the more sort of insight you have, more capacity, um, and it will mean sort of shorter bursts of care potentially, like you might only need a couple of sessions early on. You know, if you end up leaving it a few years, you might need longer-term therapy. So it's um, definitely early is good. And and just because you start seeing a counsellor doesn't mean that 
you have to see them for life like it can be a short-term intervention because I think sometimes people think I've signed up for this now this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life Mm. Um, but it doesn't have to be like that. (laughs) Well and that intervention no doubt can possibly happen in the home before we get to you. Absolutely so just yeah having that conversation on the table about how people are feeling and how people are coping what they've been up to keeping that communication going yeah it's really important with that preventative health and yeah checking in around appetite exercise yeah doing stuff together how hard is it to keep up the strategies to keep up the self-care once you start to feel a little bit better um like any new habit it takes work and practice and finding time to implement it into your day Um, But generally, if you can make a new habit within, if you're consistent with it within, you know, three weeks or so, you can have a new habit fairly easily, like feeling quite natural. So the first three weeks is definitely pretty hard to make those changes, I guess. But, you know, keeping on to yourself with some reminders on your phone or um, plenty of young people I talk to still like to use just some post-its on their mirror or like a written reminder somewhere to prompt them. Yeah. What does the phrase self-care mean? Danielle? (laughs) I think I've seen some stuff around like boring self-care and like easy self-care. So like, I guess the boring self-care is like sticking to, you know, you know, eating regularly, going to the gym, stuff that feels a bit like keeping on top of things you have to do. And then there's the nicer (laughs) self-care around like, you know, do you book in for a massage or going to spend some time at the beach, reading a new book you want to read or go and get your nails done whatever you want to do (laughs) so yeah balancing those things that are nice for us to do and enjoyable for us to do as well as those things that we know we need to do for ourselves that helps keep us running well (laughs) like I guess like a service for a car I guess you can look at that analogy too that we do maintenance and upkeep on our car to keep it running and going from A to B so we can do the same for our brains and ourselves (laughs) I mean, I think people, when they see um, mental issues, they just see it as, yeah, it's all in your head. Um, just go get medication and you'll be fixed overnight. Um, they don't really know the whole grasp of it. Like when I started getting help and I'd have friends be like, oh, why don't you take, start taking that medication? You'll be fine. You'll feel good. I was excited. I was like, oh, yeah, like I can finally... F- feel good about myself but that's definitely not the case yeah the medication might help in certain factors but it's the the talking and sussing out the problems which is the main factor before you got support did you think talking could help as much as it perhaps has before i got help i didn't think anything would help to be honest i was so stuck in this is how i'm going to be for the rest of my life so what do you do now to make sure that you're still as good as you're able to be um, if I have issues, I definitely talk about them. Yeah, I have a, a small friend group. I have a person in particular that I talk to. We've come to each other. We're the first point of contact. But yeah, just getting on with my life and, and doing stuff that I never seen, never thought that I would do, like working, going out, socializing, all those sort of things definitely helps. Like looking back on it, like I'm kind of proud of where I've come and the changes that I've actually made and yeah it's definitely that definitely helps
Ella, what are some of the things that you do to keep managing your mental health ongoing? Obviously making sure that I have fairly regular check-ins with people at Headspace, friends, family members is really good. I dance, I really love dance, so that's a really good place for me to go and because of what I'm doing I'm not thinking in the same way that I would in any other place I'm going oh how how do I do that this idea how do I physicalize it oh that movement how do I need to arrange my hands so that I can fall into the floor softly without hurting myself being able to do the movement I need to have a completely different way of thinking so there's other thoughts They definitely do, but it is a lot harder for them to penetrate that space. And what about self-care? What does that mean for you? Finding the time to address my issues, but also finding the time to let them just sit by themselves, not ignoring their existence completely, but letting them just kind of be there. Liz, what, what do you do for the ongoing management of your mental health? Yeah, just like um, making sure I go to Headspace, like even if I'm having a bad day and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to go, like just that's the one thing that I always force myself to do um, because like once you're there, it's not as bad as what you think. Like it's one of those things that you build up and you're like, oh, my God, like I'm going to have to talk about things, but once you're there, like, it's so much better. You feel so much better walking out the door. Um, you know, exercise, loving, like, taking the dog for a walk, you know, just put some music in, not have to have any responsibilities, just go out, spend some time to yourself, um, hanging out with friends, um, just making sure that you've got a really good support base around you. But then also just taking time to yourself, you know, to – sit and watch something on TV or, you know, do a puzzle, do some cooking, like something that you really enjoy that you don't need anyone else for, um, that, you know, you're going to get some reward out of and just, yeah, making sure that you do things that make you happy and try not to worry about other people's perception too much. And Shana, for you? I too also do regular check-ins with um, school social worker and also outside of school um, I try my best to go out of my comfort zone and go and socialise, which if it's a success, then I feel better. And I'm able now to like also kind of manage those thoughts going to like, don't do this, don't do that. I'm kind of able to talk myself out of that and think of, the future of like what I want to do in the future and that motivates me to get out of that thought process and do something instead of just stay home now that I'm like I know where I want to go in my life and what I want to do that's really helped that become easy to manage and Yeah. And that brings us to the end of this series. Do you remember right back in episode one 
I suggested that there might be some familiar stuff that could feel really uncomfortable, but there might also be some really useful stuff. And look, sometimes you might need to hear it more than once. So we'd love for you to go back and listen. We'd love for you to recommend this podcast to someone else and perhaps even listen to it or talk about it with someone else. Discuss what you've heard. And of course, I just want to remind you again to not take individual mental health advice from a podcast. Don't do that. There are so many great links in the show notes that will take you to a place who can give you the support you need. Think of this perhaps as a resource and a bloody good one. (laughs) But look, before I finish up, there's something that Liz said that's still hanging around in my head. And look, I reckon you know it. You've heard it before, but... When you're really trying to help someone you care about, it can be really easy to forget. Um, I just think, like, you need to not be offended if you're not the person that they choose to talk to. So, yeah, you can be there and you can be available, but if they choose not to talk to you, like, don't be offended, don't be upset, like... Sometimes you're just more comfortable with other people for no apparent reason. Um, so just making sure that they have someone that they are talking to and that they are supported. And if that's you, like, that's great. Be there for them. Make sure you support them. But if it's not you, the ultimate goal is that we're helping this person and that they're okay. Such a good reminder. But, yeah, easier said than done. Possibly like lots of the things that we've learned over six episodes of Get Sight. But you know what? You've made a start. And that's the best bit. And helping us get that start? So many people, including the clinicians from Headspace, Danielle Jackson, Mark van den Enden and Caroline Thane. And a shout-out too to Wayne Frost from Headspace for clinical oversight and encouragement and to David O'Sign from Cornerstone Youth Services for helping us get this project off the ground. A huge thanks to my team, Lucy and Hayden at Healthy Tasmania, for their support, plus the many young people and old people who helped us figure out what to talk about. And I couldn't be more thankful to four people who really made this happen, to Luke, Liz, Shana and Ella. Seriously, the things that you've taught me, I use every day. And I hope the people listening to this podcast will as well. And we never would have got to make this podcast if it wasn't for Primary Health Tasmania and the funding that we received through the Australian Government Primary Health Networks Program. My name is Penny Terry and seriously, I just want to say thank you for listening. The things that you've learnt will help to make my community a healthier and happier place.